Welcome back. We are in a continuing study of John's Gospel. And today we are going to pick up the text at the beginning of chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. And we're going to read through verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. One of the things that you recognize as you make your way through the Gospel of John is how intense the Lord's enemies are at bringing about his ultimate downfall. Now, this was something that had been growing for some time. Actually, in the chapter that precedes this one, in chapter 7, you'll recall that Jesus had gone up to the feast in Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths. And while he was there, the Jewish religious leaders had made an attempt to actually take him. This was really their first attempt to take him by force. They had sent temple guards out to arrest him. The temple guards arrive, they hear Jesus teaching, and they are in awe of his teaching. They recognize that no one had ever taught like this. This man spoke as one having authority, not some sort of derived authority that came from the scribes and the Pharisees. And so instead of taking him, they actually go back to those who had sent them empty-handed. And the religious leaders say, well, where is he? We gave you orders, where is he? And they said, we couldn't take him. No one ever spoke like this man spoke. And of course, the religious leaders were absolutely furious at this point. But they recognized that to take Jesus by force in any other way probably would have involved the ire of the crowds. They probably would have found themselves in hot water. And so what they do is they resort back to their old tricks of trying to somehow discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. And that's exactly what we see them doing here in John chapter 8. Now, this is not the first time they had done this sort of thing. Today's gospel lesson that you'll hear in church today, a lawyer came up to Jesus with the intent of tricking him, entrapping him. There were always these kinds of questions. Last week in the gospel, you'll recall that somebody came up and asked him the question, was it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, that was a tricky question because no matter how Jesus answered it, he was going to be in trouble with someone. Now, the crowds absolutely hated the oppressive Roman regime. And so if Jesus said, well, you know, the law is the law and we're subject to the civil authorities, yes, you have to pay your tax, 
Well, then the crowds would have loved Jesus. He would have been a hero to the common man. But the religious leaders recognized he would have been in hot water with the authorities, with the Romans. Uh, that would have been sedition. It was punishable by death. And yet, on the other hand, if Jesus said, well, you know, um, I think you shouldn't pay your taxes to that pagan polytheistic empire, well, that would have been troublesome as well. No matter how Jesus answered the question, if he said, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, uh, that would have gotten him in trouble, made him a hero to the common people, gotten him in trouble with the Romans. On the other hand, if he said, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, well, he would have been in trouble again, no matter what he did. So there were these questions and these traps that were always laid for Jesus. And we see another one here in John chapter 8. This time they bring before him a woman who has been caught in adultery. It was a sticky situation simply because, again, no matter how Jesus answered, he was going to be in trouble with someone. Jesus had been going about the countryside preaching about grace and mercy and pardon and forgiveness and the compassion of God towards sinners. So if he said, well, this woman's been caught in adultery, but, you know, none of us is perfect, so let's go ahead and forgive her. Well, then they would have said, well, he's no friend of Moses. Here's this man that says that he had come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And yet here he is violating the law. The law is clear. On the other hand, if he said, well... The law is the law. There's nothing I can do about that. Go ahead and put her to death. Well, then he would have been in trouble because the people would have said, what a hypocrite. Where's all the grace and the mercy and the pardon and the forgiveness? So it was a sticky situation. And what we're going to see is that Jesus manages, as he always does, to get out of it and to teach us a lesson in the process. Now, we need to say right from the beginning as we begin to study this particular story, this woman caught in adultery, that there is a serious textual problem here. In fact, if you're looking at your Bibles right now, uh, some of your Bibles may have a footnote or actually there may be a bracket over the 8th chapter that says the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verses 53 through chapter 8 verse 11. And that is absolutely true. The earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John, and indeed some of the best manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John, omit this story. It's not found in them. In fact, this story doesn't appear with any regularity in the Johannine text until the Middle Ages. So if the Gospel of John was written in the latter part of the first century... And it doesn't appear, this particular story, with any regularity until the Middle Ages. What are we to make of that? Well, some people would say that perhaps we ought to treat this story as an apocryphal story, in the same way that we teach some of the apocryphal lessons from the Old Testament. Lessons that may teach us some moral lesson, but we can't regard them as being binding in terms of doctrine. Because obviously it wasn't there in some of the earliest manuscripts. What is interesting, however, is that most scholars, even the liberal scholars, even people who don't regard the Scriptures as being a divine revelation, nevertheless believe that this story is a genuine part of the Jesus tradition. And that's one of the reasons why you'll notice it is included in all modern translations of the Bible. The footnote is there, or the bracket is there, to remind us that, yes, there is a textual problem. And yet what's interesting is that almost everyone, liberal, conservative scholars alike, believe that this is a genuine story from the life of Jesus. 
One of the reasons they believe that is because this is a very old story. It's a very old story. Um, a number of the early church fathers make mention of it. For example, Eusebius in the third century, the great church historian, makes mention of this story. Papias in the year 100 AD makes mention of this story of a woman who had been caught in adultery, a woman who was accused of notorious crimes. 100 AD, that's only 30 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. That's very early on. And St. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, the famous translation, insisted upon including this in his translation as well. So whether or not it was in the early manuscripts of John, what we do know is that this is a story about Jesus that had been circulating from the very earliest days. Here's something else that's really interesting. Two of those ancient manuscripts that I mentioned, I said most of them do not include this story, but two of them leave a space for something, a space precisely at this point in the gospel, giving the impression that something was either taken out or something was meant to be put in there. Now, we don't know exactly what that was, but it is curious, isn't it, that the space should take place precisely at this point where the medieval manuscripts insert this story. Here's something else for consideration. It fits well with the narrative. If you end at verse 52 and you don't begin until verse 12, the narrative doesn't flow. It doesn't seem to make much sense. Jesus was up at the festival at the end of chapter 7, and then you get to chapter 8, and we don't know where he is. He just sort of reappears in some other place. So there appears that there should have been a transition here. And many scholars believe that this story was indeed the transition. It also fits well with the way that the Gospel of John flows. One of the things that you'll notice is that the Gospel of John normally begins some great section of Jesus' teaching with a story. With a story. So if you flip back, for example, to John chapter 6, you have the account of Jesus feeding the multitude, Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this gives rise, this story of Jesus and his teaching, his encounter with the crowds, gives rise to one of the most famous of his teachings, the Bread of Life Discourse. And we see that this is normally the way that John introduces a new section of the gospel. He almost always introduces it with some personal story or Jesus' encounter with individuals or with the crowd, and then this gives rise to some great teaching. You take this story out of John chapter 7, John chapter 8, and you don't have that pattern. That pattern is broken. Here's another reason why most scholars believe that this was a genuine part of the Jesus tradition. It is because some insist that it was purposely removed from the gospel narrative because it was being misunderstood in that Greco-Roman culture of the day. In other words, and this is what St. Ambrose says, this is what St. Augustine says in the late 4th, early 5th century. These are great, great masters of the faith. Augustine is probably the greatest theologian since the time of the Apostle Paul. And they both say that this story was removed because it was being misunderstood. Many people thought that it was Jesus giving approval for fornication or for adulterous behavior. And so as not to confuse the masses, you know, Jesus says, go and sin no more. But he lets the woman go. 
And so many people were taking that as license to go ahead and engage in these kinds of behavior where it was so prevalent in that culture in the first century. And so both Augustine and Ambrose insist that the story was removed for that very reason so that it would not be misunderstood. But I think perhaps the most compelling piece of evidence for the inclusion of this story, all of these, I think, are good reasons for us to treat this as a genuine story from the life of Jesus. But I think perhaps the most powerful piece of evidence of all is the fact that this is a story that is very much in keeping with Jesus' character. The way that Jesus handles this woman, and I emphasize the fact that he's dealing with a woman here, the fact that Jesus deals with this woman in this way, I think, is evidence that this is certainly part of the gospel story. Now, it may not have been at this point in John's gospel. It needs to be said that it sometimes appears in other places. Uh, Some uh, translators actually include this at the end of Luke's gospel and not in John. But I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever in the minds of anybody that this is a genuine story, that this is what really happened. Whether it was included at this particular point in John's narrative or whether it was included at the end of Luke's gospel, whatever it is, it is certainly a real story and we need to treat it as such. And when we actually look at it in detail, what we discover is that it is a very, very powerful story indeed. A story about Jesus' encounter not only with this woman, but really about Jesus' encounter with us. So that's how I regard this story. That's how scholars regard it for the most part today, and that's how we are going to treat it this morning. Now, that being said, this, as I have already suggested, was another attempt on the part of the Jewish religious leaders to entrap Jesus. Their malice had reached such a degree that they were willing to do anything at all to bring the Lord down. And this was a serious situation. It was a serious situation because this was no question about, you know, paying taxes to Caesar. This was not a question about if a man dies and he leaves a widow and she marries his brother and she goes through seven brothers whose wife is she going to be in the kingdom of God you know those are the kinds of questions about like you know how many angels dance on the head of a pen it wasn't that kind of a question this was a serious matter a woman was being brought before Jesus and her life was on the line And that's why I say it was one of their old tricks of trying to entrap Jesus, but you see it's intensified here because somebody's life is now at stake. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. I think that seems rather harsh to us today, that anybody should be put to death for the act of adultery. But that is indeed what the law of Moses stated. In the book of Leviticus, it's it's stated that a woman was to be put to death. Now, what's interesting is that in Jesus' day, the manner of putting someone to death for this particular crime was by strangulation. Here, they are talking about stoning, which indicates to us that this was probably a young woman. Why? Because stoning was prescribed for somebody who was 
a young bride just at the time of her marriage who is guilty of adultery. So there were variations within the law. So for all we know, this was a very young woman. And everything in the story has the marks of a setup. We're going to see how that was the case. Now, as I said, putting someone to death for adultery seems like a harsh thing. I mean, we know people today who commit adultery on a regular basis. You can't watch a single television show where you don't see it happening over and over and over again. We sort of shrug our shoulders at this sort of thing. We sort of look askance at this sort of thing, but we certainly don't think that it is a crime that, in, that involves imprisonment or even death. I think there are two responses to this. The first response is this just goes to show you how... Casually, how we are so cavalier in our approach to sin that we don't recognize that sin is a serious matter. Particularly notorious sins. We have a tendency to sort of just look the other way. But we can't forget that the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is what? It's death. And the Jews took that matter seriously. But here's the real reason, I think, why Jews regarded this as a crime that was punishable by death. Now, as we're going to see, Jesus does not allow them to put this woman to death because we're reminded that all sins are forgivable, adultery being one of them. But here's the reason why Jews took adultery so seriously in the first century. It's because they recognized that marriage and family were foundational institutions. They were foundational to society. What's the very first institution established by God? Marriage. Back in the book of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates man in his own image. He looks at everything that he has made. And at one point he says, it is not good for what? For man to be alone. And so he makes for man a helper. And the two become one flesh. And they have children. And that is the first institution in all of society. And because it is the first, the Jews understood it to be foundational. They believe that all other institutions, all other human institutions ultimately derive their life from this one. Think about it for just a moment. The very first education takes place where? Well, not in schools, not in academies, not in colleges or universities. The very first education takes place in the home where parents teach their children how to read, to write, to walk, to talk. The very first education takes place in the home. The very first health care takes place in the home, where parents care for their children when they are sick, and they teach their children to care for each other when they are sick. When a child falls down and skins his knee, the very first care that he receives is from his parent. Very first moral instruction takes place where? In the home where children are told what they ought to do, what they ought not to do, what is right, what is wrong. Manners are taught there. It's one of the things I recognize moving down from Pennsylvania 30 some years ago to South Carolina. Everybody said, yes, ma'am. Where did you learn that? Well, you don't learn that in the public school, I can tell you right now. Where do you learn that? You learn that in the home, the moral instruction. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Those sorts of things take place at home. And the very first government, if you think about it, is found in the home. 
where a father exercises his spiritual headship over the family. And that kind of government ultimately gave rise to patriarchal systems that ultimately gave rise to monarchical systems. And from those monarchical systems, ultimately, all forms of democratic government today. So the Jews recognize marriage and family as being foundational. Now, here's the question. This was the question that the psalmist asks. If the foundation is removed, what can the righteous do? In other words, if you destroy the foundation of a building, what's going to happen to the superstructure? What's going to happen to what has been built above? It's going to collapse. It's going to compromise. And so the Jews realized that if marriage and family were foundational and marriage and family were destroyed, the foundation was destroyed, it wouldn't be long before society as a whole would come toppling down. And I think that the Apostle Paul recognized this. Now keep your finger there in John for just a moment and flip over to the right to Ephesians. I find this to be really fascinating. I think most of you probably know Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's so brief and yet there's so much packed in there. So much doctrine, so much teaching, and so much practical instruction. Well, you turn to the end of Ephesians chapter 5. The way Paul normally wrote his letters is that he would deal with doctrine first. And then in the latter part of the letter, he would deal with application. All right, this is the teaching. This is what God has revealed. Now, here are the implications of that for your life and for mine. So we are in the practical part of the letter when you get to chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians. And what I find interesting is that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the relationship of wives and husbands. You see that in chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything and everything to their husbands. And we all say, thanks be to God. <laughs> If only the text ended there. <laughs> but alas, it does not. Because the very next verse says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I love the way the old prayer book puts it. And when I say the old prayer book, I'm not talking about the 1928 prayer book. I'm talking about the real prayer book, 1662. In the 1662 prayer book, in the marriage vows, the wife made a promise to love, honor, and obey. Now, that was taken out in subsequent editions for all the reasons you can imagine, because some of you are out there saying, well, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> but that's what it said, love, honor, and obey. But lest we think this was a one-sided thing, the husband then went on after she had made her vow to say this, and with my body I thee worship. See, it's a picture of mutual submission. I've always thought a woman probably wouldn't have a hard time obeying her husband if she knew he worshipped the ground she walked on and every decision that he made was not with his own self-interest in mind but with her best interest in mind. See, it's a picture of mutual submission. 
And that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5. He talks here about the relationship between husbands and wives. Then you go to chapter 6, and what does he talk about? The relationship between children and parents. So he's talking about family here. Husbands, wives. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband's spiritual authority. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And what comes immediately after this discussion of marriage and family, husbands, wives, children, parents, Paul says in verse 10, put on the whole armor of God. Why do you suppose he does that? Why does he tell us to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, take up the shield of faith with which we can quench the flaming arts of the evil one? It's for this reason, it is because if the enemy is going to attack, he's going to attack at that place which is foundational. And I think that is exactly what has happened in American society and in Western culture today. There has been a satanic attack, nothing less than that, upon marriage and the family, that which is foundational to society. Now you go back to John chapter Eight. And you begin to understand how it is then and why it is then that the Jews regarded this not as a mere skin disease but as a heart disease that had to be dealt with seriously. Now bear in mind, the Jewish law at this point was exemplary. It was exceedingly difficult and if you remember, some of you, Alan Runyon's excellent presentation on the trials of Jesus that he gave here about, a, what is it, a year ago, Alan, or two years ago? Two years ago. We've got to bring you back to do that again. But if you remember his excellent presentation on that, one of the things you'll remember is that it was exceedingly difficult to put somebody to death according to the Jewish law. It was, it was very, very difficult. You had to have overwhelming evidence in order for that to take place. And that's what these scribes and Pharisees presume to have. Because we're told that she had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, one of the things that the Jewish law dictated was that if a person was caught in the act of adultery and the authorities were requiring the death penalty, both parties had to be brought in. In other words, the Jews did not treat women differently than they treated men when it came to this matter. And yet what you'll notice is that when they brought this party, apparently guilty because she'd been caught in the act, and Jesus doesn't deny the fact, but what's interesting is that they don't bring the man. They only bring the woman which tells us that they're not really concerned about this foundational institution in society. They really don't care about the woman. For all they care, she's just a thing. She's just a pawn. She's just a means of getting at Jesus. And one of the things you see as you work your way through this story is that while that's the way they treat her, that's not the way Jesus treated her. 
Jesus never treats individuals as mere things. Jesus treats them as human beings made in the image of God of infinite value. I knew a doctor some years ago who had a relatively small practice. And I asked him why his practice was so small. He said, because I insist on knowing the names of every one of my patients. I thought, well, that's a difficult thing to do. I mean, look how many people are in this room right here. It's difficult to remember everybody's name and everybody's situation. And so he said, I kept the practice purposely small. I said, well, why did you have to know all their names? He said, because otherwise I tended to treat them as though they were just a case. Oh, I've got a gallbladder at 1 o'clock. <laughs> I've got angina at 2. I've got that kidney stone at 3.30. He said, I wanted to treat them as men and women. And that's how Jesus treats this woman, not as a mere pawn. So both the man and the woman were to be brought in. Here's something else about the Jewish law that is curious. In order for somebody to be condemned to death for the act of adultery, it was not only required that you brought in both parties, but that you had to catch them in the act of adultery. Now, they acknowledge that. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? They had to catch her in the act of adultery. Well, that raises a big question. Where were they? Where were they that they should catch her in the act of adultery? What keyhole were they looking through to catch her in the act of adultery? As I said, everything in this story has the ring of a setup. For all we know, they weren't interested in the man. They set this pure, poor young woman up for one reason and one reason only, so that they could get at Jesus. If nothing teaches you their malice, this will do it. Wicked, evil men who are so filled with the cancer of jealousy that they are willing to use a woman as a mere pawn and forfeit her life in order to get their own way. It's a tragic, tragic situation. And it shows us the depth of human sin. Now, as I said, this was a tricky situation for Jesus. It was tricky for three reasons. One, it was tricky because, as I said, the life of a woman was involved. This is not just some theological question this is not just something ethereal that doesn't have any practical value for our lives. Who cares how many angels dance on the head of a pin? This is a woman's life. Also at stake is Jesus teaching about the compassionate nature of the kingdom of God. Mercy, grace, pardon, forgiveness. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. But it also raises... The binding nature of the Mosaic law. Jesus had said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. So it was a tricky situation. How did Jesus respond to it? Well, we're told that he did something rather curious. He got down and he bent down and he, he wrote in the sand or he wrote in the dust of the ground. What did he write? 
Well, the text doesn't say what he wrote. Incidentally, C.S. Lewis, who you know, was a great Christian apologist, but really his real job was a professor of literature. And this is one of the reasons why Lewis says this story absolutely has the ring of authenticity to it. Because if this story was simply made up, he said whoever made it up, whoever the author was, would have told us exactly what Jesus wrote on the ground. The fact that he doesn't is an indicator to us that he's just recording what he saw. We don't know exactly what Jesus wrote. All we know is that he knelt down and he wrote in the sand. And perhaps the eyewitnesses didn't see exactly what he wrote, or perhaps it wasn't passed on to succeeding generations. Now, there's been a great deal of speculation over the centuries. Perhaps you've heard sermons in which um, people will say, well, what Jesus was really writing was the sins of the individuals who were standing around there. And when they saw their own sin, even though they're standing there with the rocks in their hands, they one by one drop them and go away. Well, that may be possible. There's nothing to indicate that that wasn't the case. We just don't know what Jesus wrote. But I think if I had to choose... I would probably choose what Professor Ken Bailey from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary has suggested. Now, Ken Bailey wrote a wonderful book, and I encourage you to get a copy of it sometime and read it. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a wonderful book. Ken Bailey spent many of his formative years as the child of a missionary living in the Holy Land. And um, he would go on to get his Ph.D. and become a scholar of the Bible, particularly the New Testament and the Gospels. But he has a unique perspective. He understands the culture in which these stories originated. And he understands that they didn't originate in post-Enlightenment Western culture. They originated in first century Middle Eastern culture, and it's something that he knows about. And he said, given the way that this story is told, it's pretty obvious to him as to what Jesus wrote. He said, Jesus wrote, she shall be stoned. He said, I know that's what she wrote because that's what the law stated. And the last day of the festival, the eighth day, was to be a Sabbath. So you were not allowed to write on a piece of paper but you could write in the dust because the dust would wipe it away. And Jesus sat down and he wrote in the dust so that nobody could accuse him of violating the law. He said, but he wrote, especially because of what Jesus says next, she shall be stoned. He upheld the law of Moses. He didn't in any way undermine it. And he says, we know that's what he wrote because of what he says next. He then stood up and he said, and you who have no sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. You see, the law not only dictated that you had to bring the man and the woman in, the law not only dictated that if a person was accused and found guilty, they had to be put to death, but the law also stated that the person who was accusing them had to carry out the sentence. In other words, they had accused her. The law was plain. So Jesus says, well, law's clear, she shall be stoned, but the law also states that those who accuse her have to carry out the sentence if she's been found guilty. So go at it, fellas. Now, why was that a tricky situation? Because of the location of this event. We're told that this took place near the temple. And if you have been to Jerusalem with me, 
then you know that located very near the temple was an enormous building known as the Antonia Fortress. It was the garrison for the Roman troops there in Jerusalem. And at this point in their history, the Jews had lost the right to execute anybody for capital crimes. That is why Jesus could not have been put to death by the Jewish religious leaders. He had to be brought before Pontius Pilate because only the Roman authorities had the authority, the power to execute somebody. So Jesus finds himself in a bind, but all of a sudden by his response, what has he done? He's put these people in a very difficult bind. He said, oh, you're big about the law. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Okay, well, then she needs to be put to death. I won't deny that. I won't stand in your way. But you also know that the law dictates you have to carry out the sentence. Now, every single one of those men standing around this woman who won't even look up, every single one of them knew that if they took a rock in hand and put her to death, then what was going to happen is that all those Roman soldiers up there on the parapet who were watching this scene down below were going to be on them like, flies on whatever. <laughs> and they knew it. So it's the old standoff. They look at Jesus. And they look at the woman. And they look at the woman again. And then glance up at those Roman soldiers who are getting a little anxious because this is Jerusalem and the Jews were troublesome and they were always plotting and scheming and here a crowd is gathering and there's a woman down there and what in the world is going on? And they're getting anxious. They're calling out the guard. And they look at Jesus. And look at the woman. And they look at the guards. <laughs> And they look at Jesus. And they look at the guards. And they realize they've been had. And one by one, they drop their stones and they drift away. Shamed publicly. Shown to be what they really were. Hypocrites. Fulfill the law, but they don't want to fulfill the law. Craven hypocrites, cowards. And Ken Bailey points out that in Middle Eastern culture, the worst thing that you can ever do to a person ever is to shame them publicly. You want to understand why there's so much trouble over there? It's a shame-based society, folks. They don't forget if you have shamed them publicly they remember it from generation to generation. Jesus had shamed them. And now he has to die. She's going to go free. But he's going to have to die. Because they can't have him shaming them publicly. They are the authorities. And so they drift away, and Jesus turns to her, and he says, Woman, where are your accusers? Where are they that condemn you? And she looks around, and she says, Lord, there is no one. And he says, well, then you go and sin no more. 
It's a powerful picture, if you think about it, of the entire gospel. Because what Jesus did at that moment when he shamed them publicly, when he called them out, upholding the law, but at the same time placing himself between their wrath, their judgment, their anger, and this woman. In so doing, Jesus took the punishment on himself. She would go free, but he would have to die. And the rest of the Gospel of John, you begin to see, this is a turning point. They are no longer interested in just discrediting Jesus. They want to destroy him utterly. I want to suggest to you that that is exactly what God has done with you and me. That you and I stand condemned as this woman stood condemned. Guilty. Guilty as charged. And on the one hand, there is the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of Almighty God, and it's coming against sinners. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being poured out against the sinfulness, the wickedness of men who suppress the truth. God's judgment is coming against us, and there is one who steps between us and our guilt and the righteousness of God and takes that judgment upon himself, the punishment upon himself, that by his stripes we might be healed. We're the woman in this story. And Jesus takes the punishment upon himself that you and I might be free. That's the price for the sinner's release. The law is fulfilled, but the innocent dies. I think this is a pattern for us to follow as well. Let me just be very clear about something here. I wish I had time to go through all of this. We, we simply don't today. Powerful story, though. But Jesus does two things here that I think are very important. First of all, he doesn't condemn the woman. But on the other hand, he doesn't ignore her sin. He has freed her. He has liberated her. He has forgiven her. But he has liberated her, saved her for a purpose, that she might live a life of righteousness. You have to have both of those, my friends. We live as Christians with a foot in two worlds, one foot in one world, one foot in the other world. We live with one foot in the world of the high moral standard. God has set a standard for how we are to live and what we want to do is we want to lower the standard. That's what the culture is always trying to do. But we do not have the right to lower the standard. But what happens when we fail to meet the standard? You know, the New Testament word for sin is missing the mark. It's like the archer who's trying to hit the, the center of the bullseye and he misses it. And it doesn't matter if you miss the entire target or you only miss it by an inch. You've missed the target. And as I said, we want to lower the target, but we can't lower the target. So what happens when we miss the target? We can be assured that Christ Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness. What the world wants us to do is live over here in the world of, the, of just the high moral standard. Condemn people who don't measure up. Or live in the world of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Oh, don't worry about it. Shrug your shoulders. Sin's not all that serious. But as Christians, we have to live in that uncomfortable place with one foot in one side and one foot in the other. And that is what it means to be a believer in the world. 
It's a powerful story for us today. And as with all stories, we are to see ourselves in it. A woman caught in the act, sinful, condemned by the law, but liberated at the cost of Jesus' own shed blood. Hallelujah. May that be the case with us today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this remarkable story. The way that Jesus deals with this woman, not merely as a thing, not merely as a pawn, but as someone who is precious in his sight. Someone for whom he was willing to give his life as a ransom. And we see ourselves as this woman. And then having been freed by Christ's blood, rise, go forth, and sin no more. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.